Again, Acts chapter 4, and before we uh, dive into the uh, Scripture here, let's take a moment and ask God's blessing upon this time. Dearly Father, thank You that You are God and You are God alone, and that You are the one that we have been called to drive towards, to pursue after. As we think about this topic, that it is Christ and Christ alone that saves Forgive us for the times where we like to add to that statement. Help us now as we explore this wonderful truth that is in your word. May we be obedient to it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. When we think of the idea of discernment, discernment when it comes to your mind is something that uh, if you are a parent or a grandparent or or in your own spiritual walk, you pray for discernment. Discernment is the idea of knowing the difference between right and wrong, all right? And when... Decisions are to be made, you pray, and some decisions you really need a lot of discernment because the obvious answer is not necessarily obvious in that situation. There could be things like this, and so if you've ever sat in an ethics class, there's great conversations to have, you know, is this right or is this wrong? One of the, one of the ones that we're actually having in our culture today is what happens if the life of the child and the life of the mother are at stake? How do we determine which one? And there's discernment that is needed. But discernment carries with it what we're going to talk about today is even more than just the discerning part of knowing what is right and wrong, but also knowing what is almost true. Because there's a lot of things that seem on the surface to be true, but the more you dig into it, the more you push into it, the more you realize that, no, that's not right. But it was really looking good there for a while that you could be easily persuaded away, because error is still error, even if it's In sheep's clothing, it's still error. We see this today in the Christian world, where where you run into people, they say, listen, I don't study theology, I don't study doctrine, it's just me and my relationship with Jesus that matters. And that sounds great until you say, so who's Jesus? And guess what they're going to have to give you? A theological or doctrine statement, because you've got to figure out, who is this Jesus? Because we all like the idea of Jesus, but when you start saying, well, Who is Jesus? All of a sudden now it puts you in certain camps. Is he the son of God or just this great teacher? Or is he just some crazy guy that you're following because he claimed to be God who is not, like C.S. Lewis said. And so what we're going to see today is we're going to see the great great gulf that is between what is the Roman Catholic Church and then Protestantism as well. We're going to see this. And one of the reasons we're doing this right now When you look at the month of October, again, there was five Sundays in October, and as we're coming to the great uh, day, then October 31st, 1517, where Luther nails his 95 theses on that door there, and we start this whole thing called the Reformation, we are looking this month at the things that distinguish the evangelical Protestant view from what the Roman Catholic Church taught. And one of the great Roman Catholic theologians, when speaking about salvation, used this analogy, and we're going to break it down and then see what he actually said. Here's what he said. If you wanted to be saved from the flood, remember the flood of Noah's day, you had to physically be in the ark. You just didn't have to agree in your heart of Noah's message. It wasn't like, I believe he's telling the truth, I believe it in my heart. In order to be saved from the flood, you literally had to physically be in the ark. It didn't matter what you thought of the message, you were shown by literally physically being in there. So the Roman Catholic theologian says, so then in order to be saved, one must then be physically in the church. 
the church is the only place of salvation. And then he went on to list the sacraments that keep you in the church. It's interesting because that sounds in way a little bit-ish, maybe is this what's going on, is this what's not going on, how do we get salvation, how do we not? We need to dive into this because where is salvation found? Is it within the church? Is it within Christ and the church? Or is it Christ and Christ alone? John Knox, one of the great reformers, before he stood up to preach, he said this prayer, O Lord Eternal, move and govern my tongue to speak the truth. John Knox is not saying, I want to speak my truth. Or he was not saying, I want to speak a truth. What he said is, I want to speak the truth. And the truth, as Jesus tells us in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if we as a church are going to hold to that first sola, sola scriptura, that we are bound by what Scripture says in Scripture alone, this is something we must hold to. No matter what the culture pushes against us, that teaching and that teaching alone is where we're going to find it is by Christ alone that salvation is offered. Because what sola scriptura gives us is the very foundation that is going to hold us as a church as the waves of error pound against us. And so as we turn our attention to the next sola, here's the part I want to remind us of. Error rarely comes through the front door. Very rarely, and we've talked about this over and over and over again, very rarely does someone come into the church and say, Hi, my name is so-and-so, I'm bringing error into your church. And I'm going to be the cause of many, to lead many astray. I just want to let you know that straight up. All right. Very rarely does that happen. Where error comes in, it comes through the side door. It comes in because someone overstated something or someone understated something. And before you know it, because something was either overstated or understated or something was misinterpreted, we'll put that word in there, and misinterpreted in that, before you know it, you can easily get error running amok in mass confusion. Um, I remember, I'll never forget this, I was teaching a class And I was teaching this class, and the conclusion of the matter was that those who are truly born again, saved, cannot and will not persevere. They will persevere to the end. They cannot lose their salvation, those who are truly saved. And I'll never forget, I came down, and a guy comes to me after church and said, did you really teach that you can lose your salvation in class? I'm like, actually, I taught the opposite of that. But if he would not have talked to me about it, he would go, guess what Tim's teaching us? All right, and I would go, no, like I actually taught the, they just, they were just either not paying attention or something, and before you know it, there was a, a something that I was being taught that wasn't being taught, because remember at the core of it, everyone that calls themselves a Christian, and when I'm using that term, I'm talking broad category, when we say the word Christian, we're putting everyone in that whole scenario that is there has to answer this question, if you go to any place of religious faith that says that you follow the Bible in any shape or form, you have to answer the question, how does sinful man become right before an infinitely holy God? The question that's in front of us all the time is how does a sinful man become right before an infinitely holy God? And for years, the Roman Catholic Church would answer that by saying, Scripture et. The word et is an. Or they would say grace et, faith et, Christ et. All of those things, and, and the Reformers came in after years of being taught this, and they said, no, it is sola, 
meaning grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and in Scripture alone. And so when it comes to this teaching of how can a man be right before an infinitely holy God, the Roman Catholic Church answered it as Christ and good works, and they would label them membership, indulgences, baptism, confession, prayers to Mary and the saints, mass, acts of merit, and on and on and on it went. And the Reformers answered by saying, it's this. It is Christ and Christ alone. Now, the Reformers went on to say it is Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, all to the glory of God and the glory of God alone. And next week we will look at how all of this is done for the glory of the glory of God alone. And if you want to build this pillar of it, the very, very cap of all of these things are leaning and pointing towards the glory to God and God alone. If any of the support columns have an and to it, Literally, the glory of God is diminished, and I would even say destroyed, if you can put an and to any of those. The glory of God is no longer the glory of God. It becomes man becomes the center of it. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 1 through 12. For the teens in Sunday school, you should have this memorized by now because we went through this. I won't ask you if you've been paying attention or not, uh, but here we go. Verse 1 of chapter 4. And as they were speaking, this is John um, and, and Peter here speaking, the captains of the guard and the temple and the Sadducees came to them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were at the high priestly family. And they set them in the midst and inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deeds done to this crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby ye must be saved. So by the title of today's, lect this day's sermon is Solus Christus, Solus Christus is another way of saying Christ alone. What does Solus Christus mean? It means that through Jesus Christ alone is the only way of salvation. Through Jesus Christ alone is the only way of salvation. But the question arises then, what is the relationship between Christ and the church? How do we wrestle through this? If you've been reading through Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5, literally Paul reminds us that the head of the church is Christ, and the church is his body. And he uses an example of the husband and wife relationship there. And then not only that, we see that this intimate interaction between Christ and the church, where remember when Saul was out persecuting the church. He literally was persecuting the followers of Jesus, and he's on his way to Damascus to collect more to persecute, and Jesus comes powerfully to him and literally cries out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No, he doesn't say that. He literally says, why are you persecuting me. He used it in the personal form that if you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting Christ Himself, and so we have to wrestle with this. 
Because how you answer that question puts you on totally two different paths. The Roman Catholic Church teaches totus Christ, which means whole Christ, where this is what they would say, that there is an intrinsic and profound union between Christ and the church as to make it possible, indeed necessary, to see the church as a sacramental extension of the incarnation of the Son of God. So literally what the Roman Catholic Church is teaching is that the church itself is the incarnation of Jesus himself here on earth. Another way of putting that is when Jesus left and he went away, remember in his ascension, what he left in his place, literally functioning as Jesus, would be the church. The reformers said, close but not close enough. They said Christ alone. They said it is through Scripture alone. Christ exercises authority through the Word of God. The church submits to the Word of God. The church is not the Word of God. The church submits to the Word of God. And they would say it is through the sacraments. The sacraments don't get you into the church. The sacraments, as in the Lord's Supper and Baptism, is what the Reformers said, not all the other sacraments. They said these, these of themselves are a means that show us the grace of God, they are not salvific. The Roman Catholic Church says these two, baptism and, and communion, are what get you in the church and keep you in the church. The Reformers argue these two, baptism and communion, are showing you that you are saved and you are one who has experienced the grace of God. It's interesting then, the Catholic Church goes on to say that since church and the Christ are united, they would say in the church then, in a way, is the second Christ. So just like Jesus held the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, they would say so does the church. And that's where you get the Catholic hierarchy. You get all of these because in their way they are following out what they believe because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that literally the church is the, if you want to call it, the second Christ. It's interesting. Because, as the church will go on to say, the Catholic Church will go on to say that the door, the church is the door to eternal life. And so what we have then on earth here is we literally, what they will call it, the Pope being the Vicar of Christ. What that means is Vicar of Christ, it is Jesus, is the, He's the substitute here on earth. So Jesus leaves His substitute, and that's the Pope, and then there's a co-mediator with Christ, which would be Mary. So the Roman Catholic Church was teaching that the way to salvation then is twofold, Jesus and the church. And since the church is the new Christ incarnate, it's the power and the authority of God. And since if you believe that the church has the authority and power of God, when the church then makes its decision, it is equal to Scripture. So that's where you get tradition and Scripture being the same. So if the Pope says something, that is on the same level as the canon of Christ saying something, and that's where... The distinction gets, the, the wrestle is, well, which clarifies which? And that's even a wrestle in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, what happens if the Pope says something that goes against the teachings that we were taught here? Well, what clarifies it? And you get the conservative and the liberals battling that out even in the Roman Catholic Church of who has the final say? Is it Scripture or is it the Pope and tradition? And it's still wrestling today. I encourage you to watch it as they wrestle through this whole abortion things and everything else that's going on in the Catholic Church. The wrestle is real when you believe that. But the Reformers stood and said this, Solus Christus. Faith 
and life of the church needs to be grounded in Scripture and Scripture alone. It is through Scripture that we find out the Word of God, not through any hierarchy of man. The Reformers wanted to make sure they exercised, they said that the authority of Scripture is from God and God alone, and Scripture actually has the authority over the church. It is through Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. So let's look at our passage here again in verse 12. So verse 12 here, listen to what Peter says. And there is salvation. Take a moment there and pause. That phrase alone is massive. How can a sinful man be right before a holy God? And Peter says, there is salvation. He doesn't say, one day salvation will come. He doesn't say, maybe there's going to be salvation in the future. What he says is, there is salvation. There is nothing more that needs to be done. Nothing more needs to be accomplished. He's also saying, this is the most important thing in front of you. There is salvation. The great question that we have heard from the very beginning of Genesis is how does a holy and righteous God dwell with mankind? And he goes on to say even more, there is salvation in no one else. There is no salvation outside of Christ. And no one means no one. I don't know how many times I, I love this. I would be sitting in my classroom at the beginning of school and there'd be two kids in the classroom and a kid would walk in and go, nobody's here today. And I would go, wait a minute, I'm here, and they're here, and they're there. And they would go, well, no one's here. I'm going to go, no, we're here. Because nobody literally means what? Nobody. And if there's somebody, there's no, not nobody, all right? And so we look at this and we say, if there's salvation in no one else, that includes who? Everyone else, all right? Continues on. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby it's a good decision to be saved. Is that what it says? No. Look at that word must. I would, if you're an underliner, highlight it. Don't even underline it. Where you must be saved. This is not an option. This, what this calls here is the necessity of salvation. It is a call. It is a demanded response to the gospel. When the gospel message comes forth, it demands a response uh, we didn't have time, I don't have time to, right now to walk you through this whole chapter of Acts, but I, I encourage you, talk to one of the teens, we talked about it, because it was crazy how at the beginning of Acts, there's a guy that gets in chapter 3, the lame man is healed, right? And all of a sudden, Peter and these guys are teaching, 5,000 people get saved, all of a sudden now they're brought before the council because we've got to deal with these people, because the lame man is healed. Read your Bible, you'll learn all about lame people being healed. It's a pretty huge deal. All right, so this lame man gets healed, and all of a sudden, massive people believing in what Jesus is doing, and right in front of them is clear indication that this is a work of God, the religious leaders, you know what they say? We've got to do something about this. Not we've got to believe, it's we've got to keep these guys silent. We'll dig more into this as we move forward. But let's move to number, number two here. Solus Christus expanded. Remember the issue that we have in front of us. Sinful man and a holy, just God. When you really allow your heart and mind to grasp the depravity of your soul, that you are a rebellious person before a holy and just God, the only response of someone who truly grasps that is a cry of help. Save me. 1 Timothy 2.5, very clearly, Paul here cuts right to the chase of it. And here's what he says, there is but one mediator between God and man. And who is that mediator? 
Jesus Christ. Because here's the part we have to grapple with. Because of your sin, the wrath of God will be poured out and is being poured out on us daily because of these things. And one day you will stand before a holy and righteous God and give account on that day of judgment. But there is a way. And that way is that mediator that brings you before a holy God. And that mediator must be holy in and of himself. He cannot be anything other but holy to be that substitute. Because in salvation, you are literally being saved from God. And God is the initiator of it. That gave the mediator between God and man. And that is Christ Jesus. It is through Christ that sins are forgiven, imputed righteousness, and that we can have access to the Father back to garden living where we can be with Him. Org Zwingli, one of the reformers, reminded us, he said, God gives us everything in the name of Christ. Hence, we need no other intercessor. It is through Christ and Christ alone that we go directly before the Father in prayer. Salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. The reformers were voracious about this issue. They would say there is no drop of saving grace outside of Christ and Christ alone. So for you to be looking anywhere other than Christ is literally what Sinclair Ferguson says, for if we seek salvation and you're looking for salvation, he goes on to say the very name of Jesus teaches it that he possesses it. Matthew 1, 21. She shall give birth to a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. Listen to that phrase. Not he's going to do his best. It's not he's going to try. It's not that he's going to offer. Listen to what the angel claimed. You're literally going to call him Jesus because that name in and of itself means he will save his people from their sins. This is a done deal. He is coming to do what he has been called to do. His name literally screams it. Think about this for a second, though. For those of us in this room that are saved, where is your assurance of that salvation found? I'm going to give you an example that D.A. Carson gave. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you the crux of it, but I'm making it my own example, but I'm giving him credit for the idea. All right, so here's, here's what he talks about. He tells a story of, put yourself back in, in Moses' day in the Exodus. All right, all the plagues have already happened. You have two guys, that, remember all the men of Israel were called to listen to Moses, what he had to say about this final plague. All right, and so Moses is standing there with the guys, and there's two men that are listening, two Jewish men, and he, they hear, the angel of death is going to come and pass over, and all the firstborn are going to die. But, Moses goes on to say, there is a way that your son will not be killed. You must, and he gives the order, kill a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and everything else, and these men hear it. All right? Now, in this fictitious example, both of the men walk back to their homes, and they hear it. They both kill the lamb. They put their blood on the doorpost. And later on that day, they're meeting at, let's say, a coffee shop if they drank coffee at that time. And the one guy says to the other, man, I'm scared. I got one son. You've got like four or five. You know, I mean, like, if, if my, pick a Jewish name, dies... That's all I got. Like, I don't know. And the guy goes, well, did you put the blood on the door? He goes, yeah, of course I did. I'm not stupid. Like, you know, I, I, I've, I've been sitting around here. I'm seeing what's happening. But I'll tell you, I'm nervous. And the other guy goes, listen, God has been faithful. He will continue to be faithful to the end. Okay, so which son 
died? I'm going to argue neither. Because here's what D.A. Carson goes on to say. Death does not pass over based on the ground or clarity or intensity of the faith exercised, but by the grounds of the blood of the Lamb. It wasn't this guy had an unbelievable faith and this guy was struggling. What was it? It was the blood of Jesus Christ that silences the accuser. And that's the blood of Jesus Christ on your behalf that we celebrate a communion. We don't celebrate and go, come on, work it up. We don't say to the guy over there, can you believe he, he was struggling? I mean, we see this all over Scripture. Remember the guy comes before Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe. Help my what? Unbelief. And Jesus doesn't say, get your act together and then come to me. He says, the one who is struggling, come to me. The one who is weary, come to me and I will give you rest. That's why the hymn writer writes, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. The blood of Christ silenced the accuser. When you stand before, when you have a day that you're going, you know what, Lord, I've sinned over and over and over again. What silence is Satan when he says, you're a vile, guilty person? You say, it's the shed blood of Christ on my behalf that I stand here. Not on any merit of my own. It is Christ and Christ alone in which we stand. Point number three. So what does Solus Christus look like today? Remember this, the Israelite nation. Now, there were times they would rebel against God completely, but very few times that would happen. What the Israelite nation would do, they would, they would be surrounded by all these pagan people, and what they would do is they would take the pagan teaching and they would just add it to the other things. They would still visit the temple, they would still do this other stuff, but they would do that end. And they would follow Baal, they would follow this, they would follow that. Now, times, it'd be like 51% to 40, but they still kept this temple stuff going. There was a couple of times they stopped, but they would still keep it going because they would just add all the other teachings too. They would look to God's for their salvation. Because remember, Israel never stopped worshiping God. They just added other gods to it. Because the other gods gave you things you could work for. All right, remember, if you didn't have rain, what could you do? You could go to the Baal worship and just prostitute yourself with them, hoping that you would get some rain. And God's word says, actually, obey me and follow my commandments, and then the blessings will come. And they would go, we need to work for it. We need to do this. We need to do that. And all of these things would come. Because we love to add. We love to do the et in our own lives. But salvation is in Christ and Christ alone, and we must exclusively follow him and him alone. That is why the hymn writer again pens, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He goes, he washed it white as snow. Here's your story. If you want to sit there, I mean, I love the, um, all the psychobabble of everybody sharing your story. So let me help you out if you're a follower of Christ. Here's your story. Christ is the beginning. Christ is the middle. And Christ is the end. That's your story. You are just but a vessel to bring glory and honor to Him. And I would say sometimes, like, get out. You know, have you, ever, you ever trip yourself up doing something? If you're like me, you do that quite a bit, especially when I try to do this thing called dancing. It's just bad, all right? And you get in your own way, and you're going, man. Because here's what Ulrich Zwingli, one of the reformers, said. He said, reminding us, our, confident, our confidence in Christ does not make us lazy negligent or careless, but our confidence 
On the contrary, awakens us, urges us on, and makes us active in living righteous lives and doing good. There is no self-confidence to compare it with this. That is why those who have their faith and trust in God and God alone are all about to God be the glory, great things He has done. So the question in front of us is this. As a pastor, when you say in conclusion, I guess that gives you a little bit more time. So, in conclusion... What happens when we fail to preach the exclusivity of Christ? When we fail to preach the exclusivity of Christ, here's what starts to take place, and I see it, and I I find myself incredibly drawn into it. I find myself as a person of this culture struggling with it. I don't know if you struggle with it, but here's what I struggle with. I am so easily persuaded by really good emotional arguments. Because emotional arguments trigger what? Emotion, all right? And so we can respond to an emotional argument. But here's what the Word of God tells us. The Word of God tells us that truth is what is to govern our emotions. We don't allow emotions to govern emotions. And it is amazing how quickly we can fall prey to emotional arguments and be swept away in confusion. Because what we see in front of us When we preach the exclusivity of Christ, as William Tyndale reminded us, it is impossible to preach Christ without preaching against the Antichrist. Because when you preach Christ, what is it going to expose? All the things that are anti-Him. And in doing and preaching Christ alone, you are preaching an exclusivity that literally will cut to the heart of people. Just like the, the men here, Peter and John, as they stood up and they preached Christ, The religious leaders had wanted nothing to do with these men. Because when they preached Christ, they exposed the error. Go back to Acts chapter 4. Verse 8. By the way, Peter here is standing in front of Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, John and Alexander, the rulers and and the elders of the people. He's literally standing, and verse 7 tells us, in the midst. Think through this for a second. We're dealing with Peter. Peter here is standing in the midst of these people. At one time, he was standing in the midst. Less than maybe a month or two ago, he was standing around a fire. And in that day and age, a slave girl, which has the power of nothing, accuses him of being a follower of Jesus, and he curses, and he gets, well, I don't have anything to do with this. And now that same Peter is standing in the midst of all of the religious powers of that day. The ones who literally killed Jesus, he's standing there, and here's what he says. Verse 8, as Luke pens it. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to this crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? By the way, remember what John the Baptist's followers asked. Is this really Jesus or not? What does Jesus say? Are the lame walking or the blind seeing? And all of a sudden, Jesus' followers now are literally doing what Jesus did, and this power is in front of them, and they literally have a, bl- a man who is crippled standing in front of them, and they're going, how did this happen? And here's what John says. Listen, I got a really good trick. If you say these exact words, I can give you the same power because we're all about health, wealth, and prosperity. No, that is not what John says, or Peter. He says, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one that I was scared to death to even profess, the one whom you crucified, God is raised from the dead. 
by him, this man is standing. Remember, though he was lame, he is literally standing before you well. Then he goes on to say, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby ye must be saved. And now they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished because they had recognized they had been with Jesus. What was Peter's struggle? He was recognized his Galilean talk exposed him that he had been with Jesus. Now, because he has been filled with the Holy Spirit, changed, what are they seeing? By the way, he communicates the truth that he has been with God. And he goes on to say, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside him, which is comical, all right, they're going, we, we got to get rid of these guys, but we don't know what to do with literally this guy was lame. Now he's standing here. Um, we don't have anything to say with that. And they had nothing to say in opposition. So they have a quick little council. And during this council, they said, what are we going to do with these men in verse 16? There's this notable sign that has been formed and there's evidence that all over the place of this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start a new Fabulous idea in verse 17. We're going to start a culture that's all about canceling people. So we get our first cancel culture here. What do they say in verse 17? Be quiet. Don't speak about this. Because you're creating a, a mess. You're creating a ruckus. And so first of all, let's get off of our woe is me Christianity bandwagon that people are canceling you. They've been doing it for them. And you know what the early church did after this? What were the prayers they were praying? God, give us little crafty ways to not offend people. No, they prayed for boldness, understanding that the whole world is out to get them. We're going to be bold and proclaim the truth. Let come what may. G.K. Chesterton reminds us that God is like the sun. You can't look at Him. But without Him, you cannot look at anything else. And that is what we've been called to do here. We have been called to understand that God is the one who shines light on everything. That preaching Christ will separate us. Preaching Christ will separate us from others. Because God's Word clearly says... There is no salvation that is found in the church apart from Christ. Not in Allah, not in Buddha, not in anything else. It is not Christ et, it is Christ alone. Martin Luther said this, Peace if possible, but truth at all cost. Christianity, true Christianity, has its feet firmly planted in Christ alone for salvation. Isn't this what Jesus said in Matthew 10.37? One must love, the one who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He was not saying you cannot love your family. Please do not read into that. All right? What he is saying is this your love for your family should not even come close to comparing for your love for Christ, because what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is what we have been called to do. It starts and it ends with Christ, and He is the beginning. It's all about Him and Him alone. So as we stand here, thinking about this, for those of you in this room that are followers of Jesus, you have literally been called to follow Jesus. The term Christian literally means a follower of Christ, or little Christ. So, I'm going to leave you with the question, what does that look like? Because next week when we come back, we're going to talk about sola Dea Gloria, all to the glory of God. 
Because if you were to reflect Christ, you know what Christ reflects? God. And so we will talk about what does it mean to glorify God. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, in a moment we are to sing a song reiterating the fact that it is Christ and Christ alone. Give us wisdom as we sing these words. May they not just come off of our lips and not realize the depth and the gravity that there is. Dear Holy Father, we stand amazed that salvation is found in You and You alone. Forgive us for the times where we like to add to it. Forgive us for the times where we are so distracted that we do not have our hearts and our minds focused on You and You alone. We know we are prone to wander. We know that our hearts are prone to, to run from the God that we are to love. So, dearly Father, take our hearts and seal it. Seal it for Your courts above. We ask these things in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Now, I've been asked before we sing, I believe,